0: Hello, Christ Church. My name is Lina Selbach. If you don't know me, you might know my husband, John Selbach, or my sister-in-law, Rita. Everybody seems to know them. We've been here at Christ Church for almost three and a half years and have been serving in the young adult ministry. By now, you think you figured out from my accent that I am Russian. I was born and raised in communist Russia. I witnessed the fall of the Soviet Union. I lived through the years of openness to the West when so many missionaries from US came to evangelize there. I got saved translating for those missionaries. Then I met my husband in Russia. I raised my daughter as a dual dual citizen and made sure she spoke Russian fluently. We go there a lot. And my family, like the whole extended family, my mom and dad, my brother still live there. On February 24th, the unthinkable happened. My country invaded its neighbor, launched a full-scale unjustified war killed civilians, wiped out whole cities, all for the crazy delusionary ideas of one man. When it happened, I was in complete shock. It just troubled me to my core. And a bigger shock came when I called my family and found out that they've never been proud of their country. How come I've never been more ashamed? War doesn't always happen on the battlefield between two nations fighting it. Like sometimes it becomes civil when families get teared apart and relationships break. And I know for sure that this story, my story is not unique. It happened to a lot of people all over the world. Every year during Advent season, we talk about peace. And for me, for years, it meant peace between God and myself or general peace for the world. War has never been part of my life. It was happening somewhere all the time, but it never affected me personally. How different this year feels. My soul longs for peace and I mean literal peace. The end of the war, the end of death, the end of bombings, the end of artillery fire, the end of targeting fresh water and electricity. My soul just longs for reconciliation and restoration. We need a Prince of Peace to bring healing to the land, to the hearts of people on both sides of the conflict. I pray for a miracle of salvation when a desperate soul cries out for God in face of death. May God have mercy on us and bring us true peace. I watched that
1: earlier this week as uh, I was getting ready for today's talk, and I was just moved to tears, and I found myself thinking at the end of it, I was like, I could just pray at the end of that, and we could all go home. And it just really captures, I think, so much of what this season is about. I think it has always been about for the church. Advent has always been a season of longing. It's always been a space that the church takes uh, on the one hand, to pause and reflect upon those deep longings that we have in our hearts, oftentimes longings that are not met, that are unsatisfied, uh, longings that, 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 that we, we so desire God to come and to finally meet that, that deep, deep ache in our souls. And then, of course, during Advent, we don't only reflect upon those longings. We also reflect upon the great promises of God that addresses the deep longings in our heart. You know, the word Advent itself refers to the coming or the arrival of God among us. And during Advent, we think about God's arrival in at least three senses. Uh, First, we think about God's first arrival in Christ in a manger 2,000 years ago. Uh, Next, we think about uh, the arrival of God in our midst here and now, how God meets us by his spirit. And then we think about the great arrival, the great coming of God, when Christ will come again and will be revealed as the world's true king and will make all things new. And so during this season of longing, we reflect both upon ourselves and that ache in our heart, as well as the great promises of God that meets that longing. And this morning, I want to consider uh, God's great promise of peace and how it meets this deep longing in our soul to see all things reconciled and put to rights. And I want to invite you to consider with me uh, this great promise of peace from Isaiah chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Isaiah, the second chapter. And and we're going to look at what is among my favorite and I think most compelling, most evocative images of peace in the entire Bible. And it's right here in Isaiah chapter 2. And here... The ancient prophet himself is existing in a, in a time very much like the Ukrainians live in. Uh, the, the, the children of Israel at this stage in their history were surrounded by much stronger powers to their north, namely the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians had recently invaded the Northern Kingdom of Israel and they had taken into exile many, many of the people that lived there And now there was a growing threat in the north of the Babylonian kingdom. And Jerusalem sat there in the south under threat, constant threat, constant fear of invasion, constant uh, threats of violence from all around. And it's in this season of, of, of threat and violence that the prophet comes to the people and speaks this word of hope of peace and reconciliation. And it's interesting because the text that we're going to look at speaks about peace and reconciliation on two levels. Number one, it talks about peace and reconciliation between God and humanity, between God and the nations. And then second, it speaks about peace and reconciliation that is to break out among all of the peoples and all of the nations of the earth. And I want to draw your attention to the the words of his prophet of of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 2. He says this, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's interesting, isn't it? The text describes the word that Isaiah saw. And so this is no doubt a word that came in some kind of vision, maybe a dream, but it was something that he saw. And in this vision, what is it that the prophet saw? Well, he saw that one day it would come to pass that in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord would be established as the highest of the mountains and would be lifted up above the hills and all of the nation shall flow to it. So in the uh, ancient world, Jerusalem, of course, was at a certain elevation, but yet there were still mountains surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And what he sees here is that the the city itself is going to be elevated. It's going to be raised up, as it were, as a mountain above all of the other mountains. And there, at the very pinnacle of the mountain, it would be the city of Jerusalem, the very place where the temple of God, the glory presence of God dwelt. And into the temple, into the city of Jerusalem, it says all of the nations would flood. And so uh, the image I was uh, getting in my head was something like this. I'm sure this is exactly what Isaiah saw, Uh, but but the mountain of the Lord being lifted up and and all of the nations flooding into the city of Jerusalem. Now, why are all of the nations flooding into the city of Jerusalem? Now, think for a moment, why would all the nations, why would all of the peoples of the earth flood into a small country in the Middle East? You say, well, for the World Cup, of course. Um, (laughs) That's, by the way, that's the United States losing to the Netherlands. Most of us don't care that much, I guess. We're Americans, you know. We don't care about the World Cup. That's not true, is it? We're changing, aren't we? People can change. We can change. But, you know, it's interesting. Why is it that all of these nations would flood into the small country in the Middle East? You know, it's not because there were Olympic Games that will draw the nations into countries in our day, and it's not because of the World Cup, and and it's not even because of war. You know, in the ancient world, one thing that would unite nations together and cause them to flood toward a small, strategically located little strip of land like Israel in the Middle East, what would draw all of the nations to that space would be war. War. It would be their desire to conquer that land. But what is it that is here drawing not one, not two, but all of the nations? Assyria and Babylon and Egypt to the south. What is drawing all of the nations? It's fascinating. The text tells us they are coming to the house of the Lord. They're coming to Jerusalem to learn. Look at what the text says. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, out and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All of the nations are flooding into Jerusalem in order to apprentice themselves to the God of Israel so that they might learn his ways. The nations are being drawn like, 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 you know, to a magnet. They're being drawn to the very personal presence of God in the midst of the city. They're being drawn to the wisdom, to the glory, to the beauty, to the honor of God there in the city. They come in order to apprentice themselves to Him, so that the nations might learn the ways of God. You know, I think Jesus must have had this text in the background of his mind when he commissioned his disciples at the end of his ministry. He said, go into all of the nations, go into all of the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. He says, go and make apprentices of myself. Teach all of the nations my ways. And here the prophet sees this vision. The nation's flooding so that they might apprentice themselves to the God of Israel and and learn his ways. And and again, I mean, this is striking language coming out of of the ancient world. You know, the the nations surrounding Israel, they had gods. This was a polytheistic, polytheistic culture and they had gods that they would worship. But it's interesting because in the ancient world, you didn't turn to your religion or to your gods in order to get your ethical system. You know, in the ancient world, they would turn to the philosophers, to the great thinkers, to the sages for that sort of thing. But they turned to the gods in order to get the gods on their side so that when their crops would fail, it would succeed. When they wanted a child, they would get one. You know, they would turn to the gods and offer their sacrifices and worship. But here, the nations are having a revolution in how they perceive the divine. Now they are going to Jerusalem in order to learn the way of God, a new way of being in this world. And you know what this is describing? This is describing nothing short than the conversion of the nations. He is describing the transformation of people from every language and tribe and people and tongue, people from radically different cultural backgrounds with different experiences and different histories, and they are all coming to Jerusalem, and they are being converted to become disciples of the God of Israel. I mean, what a vision. Now, you might be here today, and you might be thinking, you know, this is the problem I have with Christianity, You know, this is the problem. You know, why? You know, it's nice you Christians believe what you believe, but why do you want to go out and try to convert other people and other cultures and other nations? You know, isn't that so imperialistic and colonial, and didn't we leave that thing behind a long time ago? You know, can't we just respect and honor other people's cultures? You know, what's all this stuff in the Bible about the conversion of the nations? Listen. Listen, let me, let me just say three quick things to that. Number one, when we think about the conversion of the nations as described here, I want you to notice that there is no coercion, there's no manipulation, there is no uh, imposition violently upon a different people group of the ways of God. Instead, what's happening here? This is a willing submission, this is people being drawn to the beauty of God and willingly fall, falling before him and coming to him in worship and glad surrender. But, but second, uh, you know, I, I think oftentimes when we think about Christianity and, and, you know, oftentimes in today's world we get accusations that, you know, Christianity is so imperialistic and so colonial and this, that, and the other thing. Listen, note well, Christianity did not begin in Western Europe it began in the Middle East. And the early centers of Christianity, they they were in North Africa, they were in modern-day Turkey and Palestine. And you know, the first Christian nation, it was not America, it was Ethiopia. You know, Christianity is far and away the most global, the most multi-ethnic, the most multicultural uh, religion in the history of the world. And, And thirdly, note this, you know, The great marker of Christianity is not colonialism. Now, I'll I'll be the first to admit that, of course, uh, over the last couple hundred years, Christianity has been complicit with colonialism. It's been complicit with imperialistically going and exporting, you know, Western European values and culture and styles of dress and such uh, in, in connection also with Christianity. But listen, that is not how the Christian gospel historically has spread, and that's not how it has most, powerful, most powerfully spread and, and gained traction in the world. You know, um, there's a, a, a scholar, uh, an African scholar named Laman Sane, who teaches at Yale, who wrote a book, a really important book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And in this book, Laman Sane points out that he says the genius of Christianity is translation. You know, Islam is not a religion that is easily translatable. In fact, the Quran is not supposed to be translated because they believe that it was dictated by Allah in Arabic, But Christianity has always been from its inception translatable into other people groups and other cultures that at the same time challenges aspects of the culture while also embraces other features of the culture. And what Christianity does is it's like a seed, it goes into a host culture and it begins to grow and flourish within that culture, oftentimes helping that culture with the deepest problems that it faces. And this is how Christianity has always spread. And as Salaman Sani points out, he says, look, he says, in Africa, he says, one of the cultural issues we have always faced is he said, "is, is, is we have always been aware of and highly sensitive to dark spiritual forces and powers. And he says, you know, our animistic religions, he says, they have been ineffective in helping us cope with that. And he said, and what has secularism in the West done? He says they mocked our respect for the sacred and the spiritual. But then he said this, Christianity did not do that. He said Christianity came in and Christianity actually addressed and met and transformed their, them at their deepest level, helping them meet their deepest issues. And he wrote this. He said, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or, or their clamor for an invincible savior And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. And after that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. And listen, Christianity at its best, as the gospel has gone out to every tribe and nation and people starting in Jerusalem and going out to Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately out to the uttermost parts of the earth, it's always embedded itself within a host culture and it's challenged certain aspects of it and it has brought transformation even as it does among the nations here and yet it then finds expression so that ultimately in the future, the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom of homogeneity. It's not a kingdom of people who have all of the same culture and all of the same ethnicities and all the same language. No, it is a kingdom that is marked by rich and beautiful diversity, culturally and ethnically and racially, all brought together for what? Why do the nations come to Jerusalem? They come in order to sit at the feet of Yahweh and learn his ways in this world, what unites Diverse people together is not our language, it's not our shared national history. What ultimately unites us together is our shared commitment to Jesus Christ. And, friends, this is what will always bring unity in the church. It is a commitment, a deep loyalty to Jesus and to his radically different way of being in this world. And different people and different languages and different cultures and different tribes come together underneath that heading. And that is where true Christian unity is found, is through our shared discipleship to Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so he gets this vision of. All of the nations of the world that were formerly at odds, worshiping idols, abandoning their idols, and coming to Jerusalem and being converted and being reconciled and brought at peace with the true and living God. But the reconciliation with God leads to a reconciliation among national and international relations, among social relations, and look what happens next. It says, he shall judge between the nations... And shall decide disputes for all the peoples, which I take to mean that when, when, when this day finally arrives, one of the things that God is gonna do is he's gonna teach the nations how to get along. You know, have you ever, um, you know, do, do you recall being a small child, you know, growing up at home and you'd be getting in a fight with your siblings? Uh, maybe some of you are in this regular habit yourself. And mom or dad comes in and they want to teach you how to get along, how to play well together. Well, it's interesting, the vision of what God will do is through his word that becomes flesh in Jerusalem, he begins to teach the nations how to get along. He begins to teach world leaders. He begins to teach uh, people from different political parties. He, He begins to teach people from different theological vantage points and perspectives, people who have different life histories and life experiences. He teaches us how to get along. He helps decide disputes between the nations, between the peoples, And as a result, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, which is to say his work of bringing reconciliation between the nations is going to be so effective that war itself will become obsolete. And there will be no more need for swords or spears. And so what are we going to do with all that stuff? What are we going to do with all of that technology of warfare that we developed? What are we going to do with the... $2.1 trillion that were spent in uh, 2021 on uh, military throughout the world. What are we going to do with all of the training and all of the expertise and all of the ingenuity and the intelligence and the leadership that went into warfare? Well, we're going to have to upcycle, and we're going to have to reuse that and put it in service of better things. The weapons of warfare are going to be transformed into implements of farming. And what's the difference between a sword and a plowshare? The purpose of a sword is to become very sharp and to kill. The purpose of a plowshare is to actually cultivate life and to help life flourish and grow. And what is the vision here? It's of nations coming together and being in such harmony and love with one another. That they no longer need weapons of warfare, and now they are just using all of that technology, all of that expertise, all of that know-how, all of that wealth, and they're putting it in the service of mosquito nets, and clean water, and wells, and uh, uh, t- technology to help, and, and, and healthcare to, to 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 service different health crises and health needs, and education, and they're they're putting all of this in the service of things that cultivate and bring fruition in human life. Is it just me or is this a compelling vision that Isaiah is giving us? He's saying, look, see the nations one day. Jerusalem is gonna be lifted up And and the nations are going to come, and they're going to learn there in Jerusalem. as as, As Jerusalem is lifted up as the highest hill of all of the mountains of the earth, they're going to learn peaceableness among each other. They're going to learn how to get along, and it's going to be so effective that it's going to lead to a time of world peace where all will get along, and they will cultivate life among one another. I mean, just stop for a minute and just think, what would it be like to live in a world where Vladimir Putin and Zelensky could go to Jerusalem and sit at the feet of Jesus and say, look, we've got some disputes over land and territory and history. Can you help us out? Guide us. I mean, what would it be like if uh, uh, President Xi of China... And Biden could sit down and say, look, we've got a lot of cyber hacking and cyber warfare going on. Jesus, can you just, can you just help us figure this thing out? I mean, what if couples who are, who are, who are in fights at home? And what if siblings? And what if uh, friend drama with roommates? What if, what if w- when you face any kind of conflict or, you know, disintegration of a relationship or or fighting you know stuff that's 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 creating so much anger in you because you've been hurt and you've been wounded what if you were to carry all of that to Jesus and you were to say teach me help me learn how to help us learn how to get along i mean what would the nations learn what would the presidents what what would what would husbands and wives what would siblings what would friends What what would the the Republicans and the Democrats learn if if we went to Jerusalem and we looked up to that hill that was exalted over all of the other mountains of the earth? What might we see? We might see exalted on that hill, the crucified one. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's as if Jesus does a little riff, a little reinterpretation of the vision of Isaiah and says it's... It is is the crucified Messiah who gives himself, bearing in his own body all of the wounds and the pain and the wrong of the world and not coming back at the world with hate and with vengeance, but instead with a willingness to grace and forgive and love. When you look up and you see the crucified one, and he says, this is the way to healing among the nations. It is the way of cross-shaped love. Sin-bearing, wrong-bearing, forgiveness extending, grace pouring out love. This is the path. This This is the road we must walk in order to come to a place where the weapons of warfare are obsolete. Now, of course, this vision... we're given here it is for the future the day is coming when the curtain will be pulled back and jesus will be revealed as the world's true king and on that day all things will be made resurrection new and there will be no more crying or death or pain for the former things have passed away behold he says i am making all things new But this vision for reconciliation and peace is not just a future vision. It is also a reality that has broken into the world through Jesus and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is already on the move he is already seeking to form communities of people. He is seeking to work in the hearts of individuals who are experiencing conflict and pain and dissolution. And he's seeking to show us there is a better way of healing. There is a way of reconcilia- reconciliation and peace that ultimately the entire universe is headed towards. And right now you can participate in the work of reconciliation and peace. Does that sound unrealistic to you? You know, it can sometimes just feel like, you know, the, the only way, I mean, the only way, especially for nations and for people groups to solve problems is with guns and tanks and bombs. I mean, might is right. You got to have a strong military. I mean, this is how we keep peace in the earth is through strength. And what about Relationships. How do you protect yourself from vulnerability? Well, you gotta you gotta maintain strength. You gotta attack first. They hurt you, you better hurt them back. You know, you gotta guard yourself. And maybe you'll use your words as swords or spears that inflict pain because you were so wounded and hurt by those words and by that action. And so now you gotta fight back, and anything else just feels too vulnerable and unsafe. Is there really a different way of being in the world? Of course, Jesus teaches us, yes, indeed, there is. There's a way of being that requires vulnerability and openness, that is willing to bear wrongs, that is willing to sit down and listen and understand and empathize, and to extend forgiveness. You say, well, does, uh, is this what we are expected to do? Well, look at the next verse. He says, oh, house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. you know what he's telling us here? He's saying, look, I've given you this vision. Now I want you in the present age to walk in light of the eternal reality of peace and reconciliation that is to come. We are to be a community of that new creation, that creation marked by reconciliation and healing brought about by the power and love of God in Jesus Christ. We are to be a community that bears and, and that bears witness in how we engage in relationships to the reconciliation and the healing that is to come. Come, now let us walk in the light of the Lord. But again, we wonder like, is this realistic? You know, um, a few years back, I, I read a book um, by that brilliant leader and Nobel Prize winner, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu. And the book was called No Future Without Forgiveness. And in this book, uh, Bishop Tutu describes his own work. And some of you might know this, but uh, Bishop Tutu uh, was, was a, a key leader Uh, right in the midst of uh, bringing the fall of apartheid in South Africa. And after it fell, everyone was terrified. When apartheid falls, there is going to be reprisals, and uh, those who have been oppressed and marginalized are going to rise up, and they're going to do violence against their oppressors, because this is what always happens. And yet a different path was forged in South Africa through the leadership of Bishop Desmond Tutu, that was guided by the leadership of Jesus who teaches peace and forgiveness and healing. Bishop Tutu in this book describes going to Rwanda right after the Rwandan genocide and talking to Hutsis and Tutsis, yes, Hutus, Tutsis. Yes, okay, you got it, and He's talking to them about a different way forward than a forward of simply getting someone back because they hurt you. And he said this, I told them that the cycle of reprisal and counter-reprisal that had characterized their national history had to be broken and that the only way to go beyond retributive to restorative justice to move on to forgiveness because without it, there was no future. He says, the only way for you to move forward is through forgiveness. And he goes on and he says this, in forgiveness, people are not being asked to forget. On the contrary, it is important to remember so that we should not let such atrocities happen again. He says, look, memory is important. You name what's wrong and you remember what's wrong. But then he says, forgiveness does not mean condoning what has been done. It means taking what happens seriously and not minimizing it, but drawing out the sting in the memory that threatens to poison our entire existence. Forgiveness is about extracting the memory that threatens to poison our entire existence. There was an image on the cover of the magazine Health and Spirituality a few years back of three soldiers at the Vietnam Memorial at Washington, D.C., and the caption read one soldier said to another have you forgiven your captors to which the response came i will never forgive my captors and he responded well then you will remain captive to them and you know that don't you in your own life when you forgive when you release something let's go But when you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, it does something corrosive and toxic to your soul. And then he says this. He says, in the act of forgiveness, we are declaring our faith in the future of a relationship and in the capacity of the wrongdoer to make a new beginning on a course that will be different from the one that caused us the wrong. In other words, you are declaring your confidence that God is able to convert people. God is able to change people. People can change. They can get on a new course, and the things that hurt you in the past will not hurt you in the future. He says, we are saying here is a chance to make a new beginning. It is an act of faith that the wrongdoer can change. And then he says this finally, what each of us does can retard or promote, can hinder or advance the process at the heart of the universe, the process of the reconciliation of all things in Jesus Christ. The outcome is not in question. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ puts the issue beyond doubt. Ultimately, goodness and laughter and peace and compassion and gentleness and forgiveness and reconciliation will have the last word and prevail over their ghastly counterparts. And he says, when we seek to move towards other with honesty and with truth, he says healing and transformation can take place. Or as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. Friends, we have to ask in light of this vision of the peaceable kingdom of God, whether or not we have adequately heeded Christ's call in our own lives to be peacemakers. And let me just suggest from this text three brief exhortations that we need to hear if we are going to become people who are peacemakers. Number one, this text is encouraging us to unlearn war. You know, I love that phrase. He says, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, for some of us, war is all we know. All we know, all we learn growing up is how to fight. How to either fight with our words or with our cold actions or withdraw or maybe by being passive-aggressive or being aggressive-aggressive or today you're aggressive-aggressive, tomorrow you'll be passive-aggressive just to throw them off. You know who you are. We've got patterns that need to be unlearned. So if we're going to become peacemakers, there may be some stuff you need to self-reflect on. There may be parts of your own story and your past and your upbringing that you need to go back to, that you need to be critical of. You need to think, is there something about my existence that I need conflict and drama just to be okay you know, there's some people, they don't, know how to, they don't know how to move forward in life unless they're moving forward in conflict. Friends, there is so much of a better way for you to live. And listen, if you don't deal with this now, you're, you're going to pass it on to somebody else. If you're a parent, you're going to pass on that way of dealing with conflict to your kids. And it may be that one day you're the recipient of the very kind of behaviors you yourself are engaged in. There's some stuff you might need to unlearn. You need to unlearn war, but secondly, I think from this text we're encouraged to beat your swords into plowshares. You know, I love the text. Um, What is Yahweh? What is the God of Israel's responsibility? Well, he comes into Jerusalem and he establishes shop. The glory of God, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and. He is lifted up on the cross. He draws all nations to himself through his own cruciform love. He says, you can be changed, you can be converted, you can be transformed. But there's a responsibility that is placed on us in this text, and it is to beat the swords into plowshares. It is to turn the spears into pruning hooks. You know, some of you, you've got swords there are ways in which you are adept at cutting other people. And some of you, you've got spears. There are ways where you can dig deep into their heart and make them feel pain. And some of you, you got swords and, and spears. But what the call is, is to beat those words that are used to inflict pain and hurt, those actions, that passive aggressiveness that withdraw the... the, the, the Physical abuse, maybe. Like, there, there are things you need, to, you need to put down and you need to think, what do I need to do for and with this other person that I love in order to draw out their best? Friends, this doesn't mean ignoring the dysfunction. You have to name the dysfunction. You've got to be honest and real. Sometimes the worst thing you can ever do for someone is to ignore the junk that's going on. You've got to name it. But, but, but listen, you have to do more than to name and to accuse and to convict or to convince. You've got to ask, how can I cultivate something in this other person? This is somebody who's created in the image of God. How can I turn the power that I have into a power that actually draws out the best in this other person, that cultivates and brings out fruitfulness. And I guarantee you it's not gonna be through more uh, disdain. It's probably not gonna be through incessant criticism. It's not gonna be through you continually correcting another person. It's usually gonna be through you entering in and sitting and loving and listening and speaking into them, and affirming them, and speaking God's truth over their lives. This draws stuff out of people, you know? Sometimes I think the very thing we want most in the person, people that we love, we, we fail to bring out in them because we keep going at them with all the wrong stuff. So he's inviting us to turn our swords into plowshares, these instruments that hurt, into things that actually draw out the best. And then finally, if we are going to really live into this vision of being peacemakers, we need to do what the nations do and go often to the mountain that is the highest mountain above all of the mountains on the earth. The thing that needs to captivate your vision more than anything else. There is wrongs, there's pains, there's hurts. There's all kinds of stuff that can captivate your vision. But the thing that needs to captivate your vision more than anything else is the vision of God's love becoming incarnate among us in Jesus and bearing in himself all of the ways in which you have disappointed and wronged and turned away from and hurt God by continually hurting people around you that God created for you to love and for me to love. And God comes to you and says, I know there is so much more to you than that. And I want to draw this out of you. I've come for you. I have laid down my life for you. Come to me often. And keep laying all of that stuff down that you need to hurt and get back and pay back. There's something so much better for you to go to and to learn from, from the crucified love of God in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we confess, Father, that we have lived far too often as people who are stingy with kindness and with compassion and with grace And with forgiveness. When every day of our lives you have done nothing but lavish upon us compassion and kindness and grace and goodness and forgiveness. God, open our eyes afresh to this infinite sea of love and grace that you pour out on our lives. God, in being recipients of your love, may you make us more and more givers and extenders of your love and kindness and compassion. Father, we pray that you would make us, Christ Church, into a community of peacemakers. And Father, we pray that even as our nation goes more and more into greater levels of hostility and toxicity and vitriol and disdain for one another, God, may you make us a community of peaceableness. May you enable us as a community to bear witness to your reconciling, healing, peace-bringing love in this world. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is himself our peace. Amen.